Welcome, listeners, to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, the podcast dedicated to the lighter side of crime fiction. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host. On each episode, I interview an author writing cozy, traditional, or historical mysteries. You won't find mysteries with explicit sex or violence. You will find mysteries with high-quality writing, intriguing plots, and engaging characters. Thanks for listening. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. I'm Alexia Gordon, author and host of the podcast. Author Mindy Quigley joins me in the corner today to chat about Six Feet Deep Dish, the first in a new series. Welcome, Mindy. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me, Alexia. Six Feet Deep Dish is the beginning of a new culinary cozy series. Please introduce us to your protagonist, Delilah, and tell us what she's up to. So Delilah O'Leary is in many ways the opposite of me. So she has a very small family. Um, She's recently relocated from the city of Chicago, where she's been a chef for a long time at high-end hotels and restaurants, to open her own restaurant in a little town um, called Geneva Bay. And she's there to be closer to her great aunt, who's one of her only relatives remaining. She's an orphan. And she has a sister who she rarely interacts with or talks to. Um, whereas I have a gigantic family. Um, actually, my aunt is staying with me right now. <laughs> and I'll be seeing both of my sisters over the next couple of weeks. Um, and my parents are coming down for Labor Day with my oh. grandmother, who's going to be 101. So we really can't move for family. Like there's so much family in my life. Um, so it was kind of fun to imagine certain aspects of this character that are really different. She's also different from me in physical size. I'm a tiny person, short. And I made her 5'10 and solidly built. Um, and all of those things, and and she's a great cook, which I am definitely <laughs> not. That's been a skill set that I've had to build as I've worked through and developed this series. Um, and having her be so different from me has really pushed me as a writer. I've enjoyed that aspect of her character because the way for example her physical size the way that someone who's 5'10 and you know has some strength behind them would inhabit the world you know her approach to physical conversation confrontations um i would always you know maybe use humor you know to try to diffuse situations she doesn't really have to do that because she she could take somebody you know even a man um so she kind of approaches something like a physical confrontation very differently Um, so that's something I've enjoyed creating about her. And then the fact that she's this hard driving perfectionist chef is also quite different from my cooking style. I like to make things that I can taste as I go along and change things. Um, with my kids' birthday cakes, I always aim high and I'm happy to achieve something that looks okay from a distance. (laughs) So (laughs) that's very different from, you know, what she would be happy with. So I've, I've enjoyed that. It's, it's, it's challenged me. And um, I just really like her. I like Delilah O'Leary quite a lot because I've managed to create someone that um, I would like to be maybe a little bit more like. Now you, you mentioned the, the research that you uh, did, you know, to create a character who's very much not like you. And so you, you give us in your story, a, a peek behind the scenes of, of a gourmet pizzeria uh, so a side of the restaurant world that 
just regular restaurant patrons don't see. So what kind of research did you do to help create that, that background as a chef? I started from the Food Network because that was my point of reference, you know, for, for cooking and chefs, but then quickly realized that a lot of what goes on in, you know, that sort of show cooking and the kinds of people too, who are good at being on Food Network shows are not necessarily, you know, representative of who the, you know, workaday cooks are. Um, so I went from there and kind of branched out by contacting, you know, my giant family with my 10,000 cousins and found people who work in this industry I was able to interview all kinds of different um, culinary workers, you know, people who have done catering, people who've done high-end cooking, um, some friends of ours here where I live own a restaurant. So they let me come for the day and kind of see behind the scenes what a day in the life looks like, you know, that everything, like I took so many pictures that day, you know, the ordering, um, the tasks lists, um, the way that they, you know, the way the line works. Um, and then there were also some key books. There's one called Sous Chef that I love. That's just kind of 24 hours in the life of someone who works in fine dining. So I used a lot of those different things um, and stitched them together to create this restaurant and these characters. I did have to take a few liberties because almost no restaurant would be as thinly staffed as my fictional restaurant, Delilah and Sone is. Um, and the, the reason for that is just, you know, you, when you've got a mystery and you're carrying these characters through a series, you don't want to be bringing like the nine dishwashers who work part-time and the college girl who just comes, you know, for one shift when she's, between classes, <laughs> they're, they're usually a, a restaurant like this would usually be much more robustly staffed than my restaurant. But just in order to keep track of who everyone is, you know, we've got one bartender, we've got one server, we've got one hostess. Um, so that was kind of fun to create, like, just what are the bare minimum number of characters that we can get away with and make this plausible even if maybe not totally realistic, but in a lot of other ways, I did try to make it as realistic as I could in terms of the very long hours that they work and trying to fit the mysteries in, you know, to somebody who's got essentially a seven day a week job working 14 hours a day. You know, it's not like she has time to go out and, you know, do investigations for three days in a row. So I, I, I tried to bring that back um, and make the mysteries be very much a part of what her day to day life would be like as a chef. Now, at, at one point in your story, you describe restaurant people as a superstitious bunch. So tell us about that. It was was that one of the the realistic uh, elements of your book? And, and what makes restaurant people superstitious? It's funny, you know, there are certain professions that I think are unusually superstitious. Acting being the most obvious one, you know, all the things that you have to do um, with not saying the name of that certain Shakespeare play within the theater and, you know, telling people to break a leg, you know, all of those right. things are superstitions around acting. Um, and with restaurants, I think because it has to be bang on every single night, you know, you can't really have a night that just is a, a hot mess. Ideally, you know, that does happen <laughs> obviously, but um, I think that there's almost like a wing and a prayer um, ethos to restaurant work in a way that, um, that, yeah, there's a scene where somebody says something and everyone has their own way of like warding off essentially the evil eye, like, oh, you can't, you know, can't say something like that. Um, and I think it's just kind of the nature of who my particular characters are, but then also in talking to people, 
who've worked in restaurants that it's kind of like, well, you know, if you, if you store the knives that way, then you know that the next day is going to be a disaster. Um, <laughs> and it's maybe a little bit of like the OCD mentality that attracts people to the profession is also the kind of thing that makes people feel like have that deep seated feeling. Like if, if I don't do everything perfect every time, then the world will probably collapse. And how, and how did you decide uh, on culinary cozy as sort of your, your cozy subgenre? I mean, was it from knowing uh, people in the restaurant business, you know, having the, the friends and family, or did the idea for the, type of cozy come first and then you sort of reached out to your network to um you know see who to who to talk to and give you some more insight into it the idea for the type of cozy came from my agent so he had maybe some inside knowledge or maybe just an inkling because he knows a lot about this market that there would be a space for something with cats and something with a pizza restaurant, you know, the combination of pizza and cat, um, you know, as you well know, you know, that there are certain elements within cozies as a genre that like baked goods, you know, things like that, that just come up a lot. Cats are one of those things. And you would think, aren't there enough cat mysteries out there? (laughs) But um, he had a sense that the time was maybe right to bring out another cat series with some fresh spin. And that fresh spin was pizza. So it was not my those two. So it was basically like, okay, we need pizza plus cat. So that was my starting point. Um, and again, that's kind of good for me because I have a wild imagination. You know, I've written all sorts of things, sci-fi and, you know, some darker stuff. So my imagination can really take me pretty much anywhere. So being reined in like that to start with was incredibly helpful because, yeah, how do you know? Um, you know, like your series mixing, like, okay, I'm gonna do Ireland, I'm gonna do music, I'm you know, that those elements work in many cozies, you know, where you've got the kind of fish out of water, new to the new to the place and a charming foreign locale kind of thing works, but how do you know that that particular combination will work? And I don't think you always do, you know, you just have to kind of hope that you've managed to find a flavor that um, is unique enough and is in the cultural zeitgeist at that moment. But now when you, but you didn't just pick any random pizza, I mean, you pick deep dish pizza, yeah. uh, a Chicago classic, which people can get very, people are very particular about their, their pizza. So you, <laughs> so tell us for, for those who have not had the pleasure of this particular Chicago treat, Describe deep dish. Oh, that's a great point. You know what you say about people being very particular about their pizza. I can, I don't know if I can think of another type of food, you know, barbecue, maybe that you get into these regional battles about what kind of meat and, you know, how long do you smoke it? And that, you know, what, what rub do you use? Or do you use a wet sauce? You know, those kinds of things where people get really, um, you know, almost uh, like like going to war. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> very like feeling. It's like your your favorite sports team is that you you either mustard based or vinegar based. Absolutely, uh, yes. And the pizza is the same. You know that you that the pizza. Oh gosh, there's an author who writes about Chicago pizza, and it's like I, I forget what his acronym. It's something like Pie Guff. It's like pizza you grew up with. <laughs> something like that, or haiku, or something like that. Um, so the the and I get that, you know, it's like this foundational memory that almost everyone in America has, 
of what, what pizza means, you know, is it like that little square cut tavern style pizza? Is it the foldable New York slice? Um, and for pizza towns like Chicago or New York, you know, you have really specific ideas. So I think within Chicago pizza, the Chicago pizza landscape, let's say <laughs> there's a very broad variety of different kinds of pizzas that I think people from Chicago would recognize as Chicago style pizzas, like that tavern style pizza I mentioned with a crisp crust, usually cut into squares. That's one that you see a lot in Chicago. But then people from outside Chicago, and honestly, you know, having grown up there, um, you, you also see it among Chicagoans that there's a loyalty to deep dish pizza, and it's kind of synonymous with the town. So it's usually baked in a thick pan, often something that can conduct a lot of heat, like a metal, like aluminum, um, sometimes will be used. And there are different ways of doing it, but the basic recipe is like a thick, buttery crust. And then you're going to do your, your cheese and toppings below the sauce. So the sauce is the last thing that's going to go on. And the cheese needs to be a barrier between the crust and everything else, because it's such a thick crust that it would just suck up moisture like a sponge. So that low moisture mozzarella, you're not going to use fresh mozzarella ever on a deep dish pizza because it would be a soggy mess. Um, you know, in the, in the words of Prulith, the soggy bottom, you know, from, <laughs> from Great British Bake Off, that's what you're trying to avoid to the soggy bottom with um, this kind of pizza. So you're going to want a crisp crust, thick as you can possibly get it cheese layer. And that was something I learned through developing recipes for this book. I started out with a full bag of cheese, you know, a two cup bag of cheese that was nowhere near enough. And I moved on to two full bags so four cups of cheese. And I thought, you know, this actually isn't really enough either. <laughs> and I feel like you could almost put any amount of cheese and it would be acceptable. Like there is no top to how much cheese you could put on this pizza. So a really thick layer of cheese, hefty layer of cheese. The traditional toppings for deep dish are Italian sausage, sometimes pepperoni, um, and then things like, you know, green peppers and mushrooms and that kind of stuff can go on there too. And then you top it off with a chunky tomato sauce that you've cooked quite a bit. So a lot of the moisture comes out of it. And then these things bake for quite a while. So as opposed to like a Neapolitan style pizza, where you're going to put it in that like high, high flame and get it done in a matter of minutes, this is going to go in the oven and bake almost like a cake. You know, it's like 30 minutes. Um, so it's an experience when you go to a deep dish pizza restaurant, you're not going to just like run in and out of there and you're not having a snack. You know, this is real. <laughs> this is real food. Um, like most Chicago food, you know, most Chicago food is pretty real. You're not going to have a light, a light meal of Italian beef or, you know, a light Chicago hot dog. So this is, um, to me kind of epitomizes Chicago, which is a city I grew up in and a city I love. Um, but then it's, it's easily identifiable with that region. And a lot of my characters come from the city of Chicago. So I, I felt like that was a natural um, kind of pizza to have them making. Um, but then I think too, the character of Delilah, someone who grew up a little bit unmoored from family has, you know, sort of in her ethos, wanting to create that family within her restaurant and create that experience of comfort and deliciousness, you know, that makes people feel welcome and at home. 
Um, so that's something that was kind of on my mind too, you know, that this is not just like a place you run in and grab a slice for a dollar. This is a place where you sit down and have an experience. So I, um, the pizza recipe in the book, that's your recipe that you developed? It is my recipe. So um, <laughs> COVID happened. I think I signed the contract to do this series in March of 20. Yeah, it was March of 2020. So just mere days before the world went wild. So like many people, I had a lot of time during COVID. And that was lucky because I very much underestimated how difficult it was to create recipes. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, like when I sat down to write, okay, that's one thing. As a writer, you know how to describe experiences and everyone's had the experience of eating. So, you know, you just find the right words to put behind how does that lemon smell? You know, how does that tomato taste? Um, but then to to make a recipe, it needs to work. <laughs> it needs to actually work and be good. So I, I used kind of a mishmash of things, you know, like I started my daughter, who's a teenager, um, was trapped at home and she's a good student. So she would kind of race through her schoolwork and then have nothing to do for the rest of the day. And I was like, okay, here's a pizza crust recipe. <laughs> Just make like five of these, see what you think. Um, so with her helping, you know, we tested quite a, a number of crust recipes and then um, quite a number of sauce recipes. And it is very demoralizing, especially with the crust when you've let it rise for an hour and you've, you know, then had it a second rise and then you've baked it and it's garbage, you know, that it, that can be half a day's work just down the drain. But um, for the most part, you know, once I found a crust recipe that I liked and I had researched a little bit to what I felt like would be an authentic recipe because there are a lot of, you know, just people, you know, using this or that ingredient because they like it. And I felt like I wanted to be a little bit truer to what um, the Chicago style deep dish that you'd get in a lot of Chicago style deep dish restaurants tastes like. Um, so having had that experience many, many times in my life, um, I, I tried to recreate how that tasted as best as I could for home cooks. And then, um, yeah, just added layer by layer, the other things and kind of hit on there there's variations on the toppings, um, in, in the recipes and the back matter of the book as well. And those, again, you know, that was just kind of like, what if we did this on a pizza and then we tried it and, you know, um, yeah, my family, we probably collectively gained about 20 pounds <laughs> that year that I was trying, <laughs> trying deep dish pizza recipes. I admit, I, I had the um, joy of living in Chicago for a few years where I became a deep dish convert, but I would never be bold enough to make my own, even, even following your recipe, which, which is a wonderful recipe, but I'm, I'm not that brave. So for those, of, for those who are like me, who aren't actually quite up to trying it ourselves, what's the best deep dish in Chicago? Oh gosh, this is, I'm going to. I almost don't want to say because people are going to just <laughs> click off the podcast right now if I decide. Um, so I really like Lumal Nadi's, but again, this is whatever that acronym is, Paigu, <laughs> the pizza you grew up with. That was one that was closer to our house. So that's one that we had a fair amount of. So that's kind of what my foundational pizza experience was. But there are different types. So there's there's a place called Pequod's where they layer the cheese over the edge so that the cheese becomes part of the crust. And like that burnt cheesy edge 
is part of the experience of the Pequod's pizza. Um, and then there are stuffed pizzas as well, where you have a layer of crust on the top. So you have your, your foundation layer of crust and then some topping the cheese. And then there's another layer of crust. And it's, it's more like a pie situation, you know, where you've got those two crust layers. So I, I think that, um, you know, they're all good and no one should turn off the podcast right now, <laughs> but just for me with my sense memory from childhood, I probably think Lou Malnati's and I'm not a huge meat eater. So I usually go with the plain cheese or something with vegetables. Well, I, but I, I don't think like a Gino's East sausage pizza. Oh my God. That's <laughs> Well, I don't actually think anyone will get mad at you for recommending Lou Malnati's because that is a very highly rated uh, place. But uh, what they should do is actually listen to the podcast as they take the Chicago deep dish pizza tour. Yes. <laughs> your book in one hand, the podcast in their ears, and then they can try all of the different uh, pizzas around Chicago and make it a, a full culinary cozy experience. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. Maybe I'll contact those people because that is a genuine thing. Like you're not making that up. That really exists. And there's a guy who, who leads pizza tours. And again, I wish I could remember it's, I think it's the same guy who has the pizza you grew up with after sort of famous for the Chicago style deep dish pizza, but um, uh, you know, like knowing about it and recommending different Chicago pizzas. But um, yeah, there's like, there are pizza tours that you can take in Chicago and yeah, do that if you're there. Yes, with with your book that because that that that'll be a nice that'll be the, the perfect yes capstone maybe like five or six <laughs> copies of my book why not <laughs> and, and 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 as you mentioned before pizza plus cat so we we can't not talk about the cat in the book um, the cat butterball tell us about butterball so almost immediately and again this is my agent saying pizza plus cat I think this would sell. Um, almost immediately my mind jumped to, so my, my day job, I work at the vet school at Virginia tech. So I I run the clinical trials office there and we had a research study a few years ago that was looking at feline obesity and weight loss in terms of owner perceived quality of life. So as the cat who is identified as obese went through the weight loss program that was prescribed in the study, getting the owners to um, gauge the cat's quality of life. So that study, we enrolled, I don't, I think 40 or 50 cats and they came back for about a year, um, every month for rechecks where they would be weighed. So I saw a a lot of portly cats over that, (laughs) that year long study and, um, really got to know their personalities. And I realized that I think I like fat cats better than I like any other kind of cat, you know, like regardless of breed or whatever that they, they just, to me were, um, they just had funny personalities, the the antics that they would get up to. Cause that's, you know, a huge part of pet ownership is just the weird things that your pet does. Um, and the things that these cats who were so very food motivated, cause this is, you know, we've, we've eliminated the possibility that this is, you know, metabolic disease, for example. So this is just behavioral, um, you know, that we've, we've screened out cats who have something wrong with them. That's making them overweight. Um, and, and just kind of focused on cats where it was a behavioral issue. And just again, and again, you would see these hilarious food seeking behaviors where like for (laughs) the, the diets were very challenging for the cat and for the owner, you know, to change up what they were doing. And a lot of times the owner's 
were so intertwined with their cat. And, you know, this is the case across, you know, anybody who has a pet, a lot of times you get very emotionally wrapped up in your pet and, and their emotions kind of build on your emotions and vice versa. Um, but yeah, like things about the owner's body image and, you know, the owner's relationship with food and that using of food to convey love, um, was something that I was really interested in with this particular relationship between the chef, who obviously is someone who expresses her creativity, but also her emotions, because she's not really a very, um, not really very in touch with her emotions, other than anger, maybe she flies off the handle a fair bit, but her mostly, she likes to keep her emotions under wraps. And the way that she expresses herself is through food. And almost her entire relationship with her great aunt is based on food. So I thought, well, I think her relationship with her cat would be based on food too, you know, that she just wants to show this cat how much she loves him. And that that would a lot of times be expressed through, you know, cooking him special meals and feeding him forbidden treats. So that's kind of a running theme through the series as well is um, her own relationship with, you know, food and how she uses that to express love. And then how that plays out with Butterball the cat. Um, And the more I wrote this cat, now I want this cat. Like <laughs> find this particular cat because I just love him so much. He's hilarious. And um, I think that anybody who's had a cat with, you know, who's, who's very food motivated and, and food seeking, I think we'll find a lot to be, uh, to identify with, with Butterball. And the other thing that cozies offer people to identify with is is settings, especially you know, cozies that are, are set in small towns. Um, I'll admit that when I saw Geneva Bay, my brain automatically read Geneva Lake, <laughs> uh, which is a real town in Wisconsin, which I'm guessing this is based on. Yes. Yep. So um, the town is that. So Geneva Lake is the lake, and then Lake Geneva is the town. So that's kind of a strange, (laughs) strange quirk (laughs) of that place. But um, I originally, when I pitched the series initially, I set it in Chicago because, you know, my mind had immediately gone to Deep Dish. That's a a city I'm familiar with, a city that I love. Um, And I was thinking along the lines of the Cleo Coyle coffeehouse mysteries, you know, which are set in Manhattan and that you can kind of create a smaller setting within, you know, even a big city like that. But I got pushback from both, the editor at St. Martin's and my agent on trying to set it in a big city. You know, they said, I really think this would work better in a smaller place. So I was disappointed because I thought, gosh, you know, it's like all these Chicago people and it's a Chicago pizza. So where do I move it? But um, my, my aunt lives near Lake Geneva in Wisconsin. And I was actually married at Lake Como, which is like the next door Lake to Lake Geneva. So I spent a lot of time in that area and about 80% of um, Lake Geneva era, era, area tourism are Chicagoans. So it's it's like a little, you know, Chicago Mecca, the same way that the Hamptons is, you know, that resort for New York, essentially, and, you know, the big cities along the eastern seaboard. That's kind of what Lake Geneva is for Chicagoans. So that seemed a natural place to move it. And the more I started thinking about that... Um, Lake Geneva has this, it's a fascinating place because a place like the Hamptons, you know, like it, it's pretty nice everywhere around there, you know, it's, and then obviously it's really, really nice in certain parts, but um, 
Wisconsin, you know, you're driving along and it's like, do 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 cows, cornfields, cows, cornfields, mansions, you know, so this <laughs> Lake Geneva is an odd, odd place that um, this really posh resort town developed essentially in the middle of, um, you know, cow country in Southern Wisconsin, just by virtue of the fact that it's like this big, very beautiful lake within, within spitting distance of Chicago. And over time, um, whole groups of people, so there would be neighborhoods of people, like there's the Congress Club, which was um, a place where a lot of well-to-do families went during the Gilded Age. They set up what they called a camp, which was, you know, they called them cottages, but essentially like little mini mansions built around the lake with a common clubhouse and cookhouse and they would decamp there during the summer and spend a couple of months there during the summer relaxing with essentially the same set of people that they socialized with in Chicago. And you see that replicated again and again, um, both at the upper end of the income spectrum and then, you know, lower down as well, that people would form these little you know pockets of Chicago essentially around the lake. And what happened with Lake Geneva that was um, propelled it, it kind of into the next stratosphere, the Great Chicago Fire, you know, that that hits in 1871 and burns down the better part of the city. I mean, it was like three or four square miles, just totally devastated. A hundred thousand people made homeless overnight with this catastrophic fire. And a lot of people who either were already used to going to Lake Geneva for vacation or um, we're looking for a place to settle while Chicago was being rebuilt, sent their families there, expanded existing dwellings, built mega mansions. So there are all these amazing um, turn of the century mansions around the lake. And I mean, I'm talking like serious mansions, impressive, impressive homes. Um, so having that kind of setting just created this synergy between, you know, all the Chicago elements that I'd already imagined, but then that kind of cozy feeling too, where you get a little bit of wish fulfillment, you know, living among the rich and famous and kind of seeing how that plays out cheek by jowl with, you know, average working class Chicagoan coming up to have a vacation by the lake. Um, and it allowed me to create a little bit more of that experience of a vacation for the mind. You know, there are some of the cozy series that I really like like the Lighthouse Library series, for example, you know, you're just like, oh my gosh, we're on a beach and there's a library and it's in a lighthouse, you know, and it just all those elements that um, allow you to really escape into a book without that data. You know, Chicago, you'd have traffic, you'd have, you know, pollution, maybe crime. Um, and obviously we're, we're going to have crime here because we're talking a murder mystery series, but, you know, very different um, setting and a very different mental place to visit. Um, so that, that turned out to be, even though I didn't get my way with setting in Chicago, that turned out to be a great place to set it. So I kind of made a mashup. Uh, there's Lake Geneva, and then there's another town right next to it called Williams Bay. And on the other side of the lake, Fontana. And I took elements of all of those places that I've been and things that I like from those places and just made this one big fictional Geneva Bay town. As this, even though it's not set in Chicago proper, it still very much feels like a Chicagoland cozy. 
And it wouldn't really be Chicagoland without baseball creeping in there somewhere. <laughs> so Delilah's fiance, you, you mentioned, made a fortune developing a baseball statistics app. So I, I've got to ask, Cubs, Sox, or Brewers? Ooh, this is another question. You ask me these questions. People are going to be turning off the podcast, Alexa. <laughs> Um, but my family, okay, this is actually a really easy one. Even though I grew up really pretty close to what used to be called Comiskey Park, where the, the Sox played um, and went to many a Sox game, my grandfather um, was a tried and true Cubs fan. I mean, he, he was born in 1918. So at that point, you know, the Cubs, I think the last time they won the World Series was 1908. So it, it, even for him, you know, when he was little, it had been a minute, you know, so it... And then certainly as throughout his life, they never won. He he died a few years before they finally won. But he that, you know, that Harry Carey um, take me out to the ball game was the anthem of my youth. He always had the Cubs on. And no matter how terrible they were, you know, he was he was hoping um, so that that sort of optimism, I think, is a healthy relationship to have with a sport that, you know, you just love them no matter what. And have to live in hope that someday it's going to turn around. Yeah, I'm I'm an Orioles fan, so I kind of relate to that. (laughs) My second favorite team, it's it's actually a tie between the Cubs and Washington. Um, So it's... I I think a lot of people like the Cubs just because they are those lovable losers. You know, it's a cool stadium that they play in with, you know, the the apartments across the street where they have their, you know, their decks that they can look down into Wrigley field and the, um, the Ivy on the wall, you know, it's, it's, it's a really cool stadium. So I think that um, people, and I think, you know, Chicago is that kind of hard scrabble place that, you know, you get knocked down and you just keep getting back up. And I think that that's an admirable characteristic that a lot of Americans can relate to. So it is one of those things that, you know, it's almost like, why root for the New York Yankees? They're going to win. I mean, it's just yeah, boring. No, Let's root for somebody that. that's never going to win unless there's some kind of miracle. Yeah. That's, that's, it, it, that's very much kind of that, that baseball feel. Yes. Know, rooting for, the, rooting for the, the guys who probably don't have a chance, but maybe just that one play and they, they take out the team that everybody expects to win. So, Yes, I actually have... So I have this theory that when the Cubs won, there was some kind of like rupture in the space-time continuum because <laughs> that was like the last normal year, and then things have been strange ever since for me. <laughs> so that that was like a big reset button somewhere in the sky that something happened, and it was like, oh well, now we're in a slightly different reality where the Cubs can win the World Series, and where all this other crazy stuff starts to happen. So, whoops. <laughs> I think that was the year that everybody was. Re- I think even the I think even Sox fans are probably rooting for the Cubs in the series. <laughs> yeah, honestly, I mean, and we were so sure that they were going to blow it, so sure, <laughs> and then somehow they, yeah, they miraculously pulled it out. Well, you definitely didn't blow it with six feet deep dish. So, what's next for Delilah, um, and what's next for you? Um, so I've got two more books coming out in the series and the way COVID kind of disrupted the normal timeline here. So the um, six feet deep dish I turned in, is it more than two years ago? It's like a long time ago. I turned that manuscript in, but because of various disruptions, you know, everybody was suddenly working from home and things just, yeah, like they were 
pushing back release dates for new series. So that book is coming out in um, August 23rd, 2022, after several years of kind of just hanging out there. So I'll be done with the third book probably this October. So just, a, you know, mere weeks after the first book comes out, the third book will already be done. So I'm hoping to continue the series because I've really enjoyed this and I just have so many ideas for where um, Butterball and Delilah can go next. But I've got a couple of other things in the hopper that, you know, I'm if, if this does not work out, then I have uh, always many, many ideas of things that I could start. So I really, I've, Cozy mysteries, I think, are my thing because I like that mixture of of humor. I'm not super comfortable. I've, I have written some darker stuff, but most of that's short because I just am not super comfortable inhabiting a dark headspace for long periods of time. Um, and I think I just really like all the people that I've met through the cozy world. These are my kind of people that have, you know, black humor and kind of like a macabre sensibility, but yet are very cheerful people who kind of like to see good triumph and like to look on the lighter side. Um, so I, I could see myself writing in this genre for the rest of my career. And um, can you, can you share the titles of books two and three with us? So book two is tentatively titled ashes to ashes and crust to crust. <laughs> um, and then book three, this is very tentative, but I, this is something actually the editor came up with. I think it came to her in a dream. Public anchovy number one. So <laughs> there's, there's actually something we didn't talk about, which is the mob connection. That's you know kind of lightly mentioned throughout the books. The the love interest is um, Detective Calvin Capone, who is the great great grandson of Al Capone, and that was kind of a Chicago thing, but actually worked extremely well in Geneva Bay slash you know Lake Geneva area. Um, because the mob used that as a place to, you know, get out of the city when things got too hot, you know, literally and figuratively yeah. for them. Um, and then also it was on the alcohol smuggling route during prohibition, people bringing liquor down from Canada to Chicago for distribution, you know, throughout the country. And, um, you know, to me, Al Capone is a, a fascinating figure. You know, the fact that he he was like a billionaire, you know, he was a Steve Jobs of his day, all of it illegal. But, you know, he owned politicians and, um, you know, all of that kind of stuff. So the the public anchovy number one harkens back a little bit that the third book um, is going to be set at a prohibition themed party that Delilah and company are catering um, and I thought it would be kind of good to get a little bit more into that uh, that era, dig a little bit deeper. And my my editor had that public anchovy number one title kind of in her back pocket. She was so excited. She's like, what about this title? I'm like, actually, that would be great for the book I'm thinking of. So um, I think that's probably what we're going to end up using. But I have a whole list. I just keep a running list of pizza puns that... Um, I, yeah, so the book, the series could continue for about 25 more books based on the number <laughs> of pizza pun titles I've got in the hopper just waiting. And uh, do you get to do some uh, Prohibition era cocktail research for public anchovy number one? I did. And luckily, I like gin because something that I have discovered through the research process is that, um, you know, that I think we all kind of know bathtub gin. But, you know, that's that's really real that people were just making gin in their bathtubs because it's something that, you know, God forbid you get raided. You just pull the plug and what gin, you know, so it was 
that that was like a real thing. But then also um, gin is really strongly flavored. Um, so if you have a batch that is maybe not turning out the way that it should and you need a little <laughs> bit more moonshine than maybe it should be, um, you can flavor it strongly. And then the cocktails of the era usually have pretty strong flavors on top of that. So if the idea is that they could mask, you know, a poor quality of liquor because, um, you know, you really had very little control at that point of what you were drinking, especially if you were in a bar, because you're not, you're not sure of the provenance of that. Is it something that somebody just made in their bathtub? Is it something that's been adultered with something else in order to, you know, maybe take a, a real bottle of whiskey and then put some other stuff in it to make it two bottles of, you know, quote unquote whiskey. Um, so that was kind of fun to do that research. So it's a good thing that I like gin because <laughs> there were a lot of gin cocktails that uh, needed to be tried. And uh, and I'm sure you'll include at least one good gin cocktail recipe in the book. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there'll be a few because I this one is very much around um, the menu, you know, is a big part of the third one, which I mean, it is with, with all the books and that in a way is kind of the starting place, um, for each of the books for me was kind of thinking the, the first one was obvious, you know, that we're just laying the groundwork. So we're going to do a basic deep dish pizza recipe. Um, and in the second one, you know, there's a little bit more about, um, her having some conflict with a, a juice bar owner, you know, somebody who's really into health conscious eating, um, so that, you know, that's kind of discussed in the the recipes. And then in this one, um, in addition to having these cocktails, it's very much on my mind that my family, um, so my daughter is a vegetarian, my youngest son is five. So he's just like that picky kind of kid age. And then my husband can't eat dairy. He's allergic to shellfish. He's got all these food sensitivities and allergies, so cooking for me is kind of a chore, you know, to try to find things that everybody can eat. Yeah. So that, that kind of made its way into a few of the recipes too, like thinking of creative ways to still make things that are good and, you know, fit that deep dish mold, but with, within certain confines, you know, so that I'm not just producing the same recipes each time. So I had to give myself kind of like with my, my agent saying, okay, pizza plus cats, like this is like, okay, well, what if we couldn't do cheese? Like what would we do instead? Um, or what if we had to make it healthy? How would we do that? Um, so don't get me wrong. There's still a lot of cheese in these recipes, <laughs> plenty of cheese, but, um, yeah, just being able to vary it a little bit each time based on, based on the plot really. So the two things are very closely intertwined. It's not just random recipes that I'm throwing in there. There are things that you'll see figure into the plots of the books as well. Well, where can uh, readers uh, buy a copy of Six Feet Deep Dish so that they can start getting their their uh, pizza mojo on while they're waiting for books two and three to come out? I, I will say they're going to be everywhere. So anywhere that books are sold, they're, they're going to be a mass market paperback. So you're going to see them in you know Barnes & Noble and airports. Um, but as always, I think bookshop.org, if you're going to order online, um, gives some money back to independent booksellers. And then if you are fortunate enough to have an independent bookseller in your town, by all means, purchase the books from there. And one thing that I keep saying to people, it's a mass market paperback. They are cheap. They're less than $10. Some people pay more than that for a cup of coffee. So buy, buy like 10, give them out as Halloween candy, use them as stocking stuffers, use them as kindling, you know, just <laughs> buy, buy a bunch of them. <laughs> 
those stockings up because that is actually cheaper than a deep dish pizza. Absolutely. Yeah. If you get, if, if you get a deep dish pizza sent to you, you know, on gold belly, it's like 50 bucks. So yeah, there's five copies of six foot deep, six feet deep dish, and you'll enjoy it a lot longer than you will a deep dish pizza. Yes, but def- definitely do not use them for kindling. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I probably shouldn't joke about that in, in today's climate. Don't burn books. It's not a good idea. But it, but it will take about an hour for your deep dish pizza to cook. So you will have time to read a yes. pretty good chunk of it while you're waiting in the restaurant for your deep dish pizza. Yes. And then read the rest while you digest. And yes. there you go. <laughs> so we've, we've solved the world's problems through, yes. through, through pizza and cozies. We've solved all. I mean, honestly, is there a problem that you can't solve through a pizza and a cozy? I'm not <laughs> at that problem. And, and a cocktail. My and a cocktail. Absolutely. You can drink That's your the, gin cocktail. You're a doctor. That's the full <laughs> prescription for every patient. There you go. Yeah, gin, gin cocktail, cozy mystery, and a good deep dish pizza. Absolutely. And where can readers connect with you to find out more about, um, you know, Chicago land and pizzas and cocktails and, and literally fat cats? <laughs> MindyQuigley.com is my website. So I have a blog there. Um, and then I, I'm on Facebook and I just joined Instagram. Um, and I'm super excited about it. Yeah, I don't know how I've gone this long without Instagram. It's a wonderful place. Uh, and I, I'd been on Twitter and I just, you know, it was like just a cesspool, kind of like relentless yuckiness out there. But Instagram is just this beautiful space. How have I not been on it? So Instagram, Facebook, and MindyQuigley.com. Well, thank you, Mindy, for joining me in the corner today. I am so grateful. Thank you, Alexia. Thank you, listeners, for tuning in to another episode of The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon. My guest today was Mindy Quigley, author of Six Feet Deep Dish. I'm Alexia Gordon, your host. Until next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening to The Cozy Corner with Alexia Gordon, part of the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. I'm Alexia Gordon, award-winning author and host of the show. Tune in next time for another chat with an author writing on the lighter side of crime. Until then, goodbye. Goodbye.